Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week, in honor of spooky season, we share some of our favorite spooky movie music. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we revisit our conversation with horror legend, director, and composer, John Carpenter. That's a little bit of the theme from the classic horror film, Halloween. Directed and co-written by our guest today, John Carpenter. In addition to being a great director of movies like Halloween, Escape from New York, and They Live, my favorite, oh, yeah. uh, Carpenter composed the music to his films, and that music became iconic in its own right, even when removed from its original context. Carpenter recently released a new album, Lost Themes 3, and he's joining us today to talk about that, as well as his career as a composer and a filmmaker. What an honor. John, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. From the beginning of your career as a director, certainly an incredible list of films, many of them that formed my life from Halloween and They Live, Assault on Precinct 13, et cetera, et cetera. You always did the music. And I think I wasn't aware of that until the last couple of years when you began giving interviews more about the music and, and touring. My goodness. From early on, what was the impetus to do your own soundtracks? Well, originally, and I'll be really honest with you, originally it, it came out of necessity. Because when you're making a low-budget film, when you have no money, you can't hire a composer or an orchestra. So if you have to do it yourself, a synthesizer is the best way to go because you can sound big. You can sound full with the synthesizer. And so that's, what, that's the route I took. Well, you grew up in a musical family, and uh, I hear it was violin originally thrust upon you. How do you go from violin not being very happy with that to playing in synth bands and in 60s bands, and then the film thing happens, and then the film and the music come together? What is that evolution like? Oh, boy. It's not something I particularly planned out. I grew up musical households, so I grew up around music. The violin I, I played for several years, wasn't any really any good at it, and wasn't happy doing it. And, but in the meantime, I picked up a little piano, and then I got interested in the guitar. And this was around the time of the British invasion, so the Beatles influenced me greatly. And I started playing guitar, and then I played in a band, and it just evolved from there musically. And it wasn't something I pursued uh, vigorously at all. It was, it just fell in my lap, like a lot of things. The movies, mm. the movies was different. That was my first love. And that I, I fell in, deeply fell in love with. 
throughout my young years and I saw a movie in 1956 and it, it so influenced me that I decided you know I have to become a movie director I had figured out by that time that that's the guy who does all the creative stuff so the director what was that what was that 56 movie John that was Forbidden Planet yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, actually, that was the first movie with an electronic soundtrack. All electronic music, it was, and it was just... I still listen to that soundtrack. I love that soundtrack. You know, obviously being a movie fan, were you paying it as much attention to the soundtracks as you were to the, the visual images? Oh, sure. When you go to a Hitchcock movie, back in those days, you had a... You know, it was always a spectacle, and it was always spectacular because of Bernard Herrmann's music. The music was sort of like inherently part of the package that you you were thinking about. You wanted to do it all. Were you concerned that okay, I'm just not creative enough to do the soundtrack work at the or even have the time to do the movie that I've just made justice with the, with the music. I'm curious how you integrated those two artistic impulses. My, my integration of that was uh, really simple. It's one job I completed before I started the other job. So directing a movie or writing and directing and producing, whatever I did, I would do that completely. And mm-hmm. finish finish the movie up to the uh, cut. I have a cut of the film with no music on it, and then I would sit down and start the music. And after spending my time getting the narrative right and getting the movie correct, then I would add uh, music to it. And uh, mm-hmm. I, in the beginning, you know, I just didn't have any money nor time. So, what I did for the first uh, in the very beginning was to record like two or three themes that I could play in various places throughout the film. And uh, then as as my career evolved, I finally got to uh, score to picture which was just a whole different experience. And uh, then the technology just keeps growing and keeps changing for the better and keeps maturing. Mm-hmm. And now the technology is unbelievable. So uh, that's, that's how it happens. So that's, that's fascinating, John. When you're on the set then with Jamie Lee Curtis or, or Kurt Russell, it wasn't like you had the tune in your head. You, you left all of that until later. No, I would be singing uh, a Beatles song or something, you know. Because I... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard other directors, like, like you know, Cameron Crowe, very different genre. You know, he would actually play music he didn't have the rights to yet to the actors on set to try to get them in the sort of mood he wanted. He, of course, wasn't a musician, a music critic. You know, you are a musician, but you didn't have the tunes in mind when you're making the movie. I make the movie... 
and then I put the music in the That's movie. Right. Two separate jobs. That's right. The ultimate, the ultimate director who used music on the set was uh, Ennio Morricone. He would have the music yeah. composed before he shot the movie. And then he would play yeah. the mm-hmm. music to the actors. Oh, yeah, that's just unbelievable. John, uh, you're, you're noted for you know, pioneering the use of synthesizers. Do you, do you vary uh, the kind of keyboards you use, or is there a go-to? Well, uh, I vary them, and uh, I've landed on a couple. One is the Korg. I've been using that a lot recently. For the bass uh, sounds, uh, the Oberheim is, is just incredible. But even that's mm-hmm. been supplanted by, you know, brand new programs. You can buy strings by Hans Zimmer. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can get mm-hmm. uh, the BBC Orchestra to play for you. Uh, it's yeah. incredible stuff. I mean, the, and the, the movie technology also is amazing nowadays, digitally. I mean, kids who want to make movies, you can do it. Just go do it. You've got the technology at your fingertips. No yeah, excuses. Yeah. <laughs> create. Go out and create. So so you work a lot with your son, uh, Cody, and uh, godson, Daniel Davies, uh, frequent collaborators, a uh, generation younger than you. What's that, what's that like, getting to work with them, and what's the back and forth like? It's a dream. I mean, look, when the, one of the reasons I wanted to go touring with the music from these albums is I got to play with them live. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just an opportunity that I, I, I never ex- imagined I'd have. And it's a dream come true. So uh, they bring all sorts of gifts to the table. Uh, Daniel is a, by uh, family, by blood ties, is an amazing guitar player. You know, his dad was a lead guitar player, so he he can play guitar like nobody. I mean, just incredible. And my son is a virtuoso uh, keyboard player. He can play anything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even we even uh, these days, when we're doing scores, like we did the score for Halloween Kills, the new Halloween uh, movie, uh, I will sing something to Cody, and he can play it. So I don't even mm. have to play anymore. I can remote control. See, this is what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very Brian Wilson of you there, John. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Um, you, uh, you talk about these Lost Themes uh, rec- recordings. Uh, it's become a franchise. It's the third, third volume. Uh, you talked about them as a soundtrack for the movies in your mind. So do you kind of do the titles come first or do you you make the music up and then say oh this sounds like oh this sounds like the dead walk or this sounds like weeping ghost or, i mean how do you how do you uh, arrive at the themes well we i just we make up the titles after the music is done we started uh, the uh, lost themes 3 albums we started making up titles with one a skeleton was originally called skeleton's penis and <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, my, my son and godson suggested that that wouldn't be good for the album. I wanted it to be on the album. I thought we'd be avant-garde and daring, but no. Yeah. So it became skeleton. <laughs> All 
are, are you really though, John? Do you ever feel, and and do Cody and Dan uh, feel that uh, you know? I mean, John Carpenter can put out uh, Skeleton and Unclean Spirit, the two tracks that we've gotten so far from Lost Themes. But could you put out, you know, Happy Smiley Sunny Day? Well, if you would pay me, I would be glad to. Uh, <laughs> just put up a little money, and you got a smiley, happy day. <laughs> but you think people would want that from me? Oh, I don't think so, but do you? I don't know. What the hell? I don't know. Maybe I should try that, huh? Is there, I, you know, is, is there kind of an understanding uh, that this would it, it'll be in the, on the darker side of uh, you know in, in keeping with the most John Carpenter movies? Is that or is there uh, like an open ended thing? Well, that's kind of the stuff that I gravitate towards, and so I force my yeah. the kids to gravitate towards that too to come up with you know thematic stuff that sounds like that. Listen, we if you with the right for the right money, we'll we'll do you. We'll give you a little happy go lucky. <laughs> John Carpenter for hire. Yeah, that's it. Oh hell yes. Are you kidding? Yeah. Well, and John, when you're making the soundtrack for something like Halloween, was this totally kind of you know your own imagination working, or were you listening to different kinds of music, electronic music, for inspiration? I did listen to uh, some electronic music for inspiration. I listened to music in general for inspiration. Bernard Herrmann, Dimitri Tiamkin, I listened to. I listened to a lot of classical music. I listened to rock and roll, Rolling Stones, The Beatles. So there's a lot of influences in there, uh, but it, I didn't just sit down and listen to a bunch of electronic music and say, "Okay, now I've got it." See, you got to yeah. realize the early scores; these these were scores that I could play. So they're bone simple. I mean, they are so simple because I can't play very well. From the mm-hmm. Halloween is the most complicated thing I had to play. And I had to work on that uh, over a, a period of years, just working on that exercise of playing. When I listen to Halloween, when I go back to that original uh, uh, film, you know, you can hear uh, a guy without the orchestra, without the talents of the orchestral musicians and, and his compositional talents his conducting talents you can hear uh your take on herman on uh bernard herman on a uh, uh a synthesizer played simply and it was a synthesizer not by choice i guess that's what greg was getting at it was like this was the convenient relatively inexpensive instrument that i can use and make noise with that, well, that's correct a, a piano and a synthesizer that's absolutely correct you guys uh, mm. you guys have me nailed you have me nailed. <laughs> My ability is very limited. I don't have the talent, but I have the, uh, uh, I don't know, the bullheadedness just to move forward. So, and is the stuff that you're writing, um, I wonder how that's evolved because, you know, are you actually putting notes on paper or is it just strictly kind of in the kind of head arrangements, as they say? You know, guys, you know, you, you in a room inventing stuff on this instrument 
and how is it working now with the with the trio format? Is it similar in approach, kind of more improvisational in the moment, or or is, or is stuff actually written down? Is it composed? Nothing written down. It's all improv. Mm-hmm. All of it. What's your favorite piece of music that you've worked on? The the, the stuff that you've composed. Oh. If you if you had to point somebody, hey. You know, uh, let's let's not talk about the movies. Let's talk about the soundtracks or the or the albums that you've made. What piece stands out for you? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, it was really fun to do it all, but it's not fun. It's hard work. See, yeah. this is why I kind of stopped it all because, jeez, oh, I can't do this anymore. I was making a movie and then doing the sound uh, track to it. It's outrageous. I don't have a particular favorite because. Uh, the music for movies is inspired by the images, and each movie has unique images to it. So the music to uh, uh, Halloween Kills is very different than the first Halloween I did. They all go along with what what's up on the screen in terms of uh, soundtracks. Does it matter to you if people only see uh, a film uh, at home Versus, uh, are, are you one of these people, you know, so Greg and I listen to so much music as music critics, right? We don't have the luxury of talking about the $10,000 Bang & Olufsen stereo. First of all, music critics don't make that kind of money. Second of all, we're listening so much all the time, you know, the high fidelity experience isn't one of our. So I'm kind of torn. I mean, there's there's movies that I saw uh, in a theater that, that couldn't, that, that aren't the same seeing at home, but, but not always for the reasons you think. I remember I saw Halloween at the Stanley Theater in Jersey City, right? Uh-huh. So the Stanley Theater was a vaudeville pal- palace that had fallen on hard days, you know, and it, and it, it kind of was uh, in a rough neighborhood. And, uh, you know, people were smoking and drinking and bums would, would come in and sleep. And, uh, you know, I always remember that the African-American kids would cheer whenever the white kids got killed in a movie like Halloween or Friday the 13th. And I'd be sitting there a little scared, and every once in a while a rat would run across your feet. Um, uh, and, and this was all, this was perfect. I didn't want to see a John Carpenter movie anywhere else. And you see, this is what my entire career has been geared to that experience. And that is exactly... <laughs> Exactly the kind of movie experience I want everyone to have. It was what you had at the Stanley Theater. <laughs> so, are we missing something by Netflixing it at home? Of course, you know, you know unless you have the rats. Uh, it's uh, well, first of all, you know, in in a, in a perfect world, we'd have a communal experience with an audience, which is you can't uh, match that. That's just incredible to have. We've been talking to John Carpenter, the great director and composer on Sound Opinions. John, thank you so much for being our guest. I had a great time. Thank you very much for having me. Wow, what a treat it was to talk with John Carpenter. I can't believe we actually got John Carpenter on Sound Opinions. You're not kidding. That is so cool. Do you have thoughts on the interview? What's your favorite John Carpenter film? Let us know in our Facebook group or in our Patreon community. Or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org so we can play it on the show. Coming up, we're going to share our favorite spooky movie music on Sound Opinions. And we are back. Every year we have a lot of fun, Greg, putting together a Halloween episode of Sound Opinions. It's your favorite holiday. We've played songs about witches, 
monsters, murders, and more. But this year, we thought we'd continue with the theme of our John Carpenter chat by sharing some of our favorite spooky movie music. Now, these can be songs written for the film or songs that are recontextualized in a horror film, used to heighten scary scenes or otherwise comment on the movie. And I'm going to go first. Uh, Midsommar is one of my favorite horror movies ever, uh, certainly of the last 15 years or so. This great take about uh, pagan rituals that mm-hmm. turn very bloody and violent uh, closes. Now, most of the music is is instrumental and in the uh, pagan Nordic kind of vein, right? <laughs> and then it closes, surprisingly, with The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore by Frankie Valli. Uh, originally, uh, Frankie's... Uh, First big solo hit in 1965, also a killer version by the Walker Brothers, I will add, including uh, this song, director uh, Ari Aster, at the end, uh, you know, it it raises so many questions. Uh, (laughs) Is the uh, protagonist uh, uh, the woman who becomes the uh, queen of the pagans, queen of the murderous pagans, um, is she uh, unhappy, the sun ain't gonna shine anymore? Or it being midsummer and uh, winter uh, falling upon us, you just walked in the door and said, geez, it's too early to be this cold. Um, is it about, you know, the end of uh, summer? It, what is it about? But, you know, after this very disturbing ending to the film, which is a great slow build throughout, uh, hearing this song uh, is is a real uh, ball-peen hammer between the temples, mm. I tell you. The sun ain't going to shine anymore uh, from Midsummer by Frankie Valley. I was so surprised when I heard that at the end of Midsommar. Well, you know, as you said, context is everything, you know. It can change the meaning of a song, you know, depending on what images are associated with it. Absolutely, and now I'm never going to hear it the same way again. So in some cases, the music takes a secondary role. You know, the the movie is all, Mm -hmm. and the music just is background. In other cases, the, the music almost outlives the movie, and I think that might be the case in the case of Goblin and the Suspiria soundtrack. Uh, Goblin, a progressive uh, rock band from Italy, uh, considers the soundtrack it created for the Suspiria movie uh, to be its masterwork. And it is the one that put the band on the international map. It keeps getting played uh, to this day. The band did a tour a couple of years ago (laughs) when the Suspiria (laughs) remake was made, and they Mm -hmm. they played the entire... Uh, you know, a soundtrack again as a, in live performance. Not that uh, Suspiria, the original version, is anything to sneer at. It's a no. great, great horror movie made Dario by the master. Dario Argento, yeah. Yeah, the Italian uh, horror king, uh, Dario Argento. Uh, but this movie more than uh, justifies uh, Argento's resume. I mean, it, it is a... He and uh, the band Goblin and Argento uh, collaborated a number of times, never... Uh, greater than this particular soundtrack. The heavy metal, the goth elements, the the soundscapes. It reminded me a lot of what Suicide 
mm. was doing around this year. This is like 1977. Yeah, with a lot of kraut rock yeah. in there too. I just I played this band on the show before. I love Goblin. Oh yeah, beautiful, amazing band. And the track I want to play is the the title theme. Those vocals that get me every time was that whispered vocal melody. Mm. Like you are being stalked, you are being watched, you are being hunted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Goblin with Suspiria on Sound Opinions. Suspiria from Goblin, great soundtrack, great band. Yeah, absolutely. We could have played anything from their catalog virtually. Uh, Continuing with my theme of a song that you wouldn't think was scary, uh, I'm going to go to the opening of director Jordan Peele's 2017 film, Get Out. Get Out, I don't know if it's horror. It it was disturbing deeply to me, the Mm. entire movie. Uh, You know, this idea of a young black man visiting his his white girlfriend's parents and this simmering unease and hostility eventually erupting, right? But the whole movie opens with the track Redbone by Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Donald Glover. Apparently, Peel was a huge Childish Gambino fan. He said, uh, I had him in to see the movie, and I put the song there and was kind of looking at him, and he loved it. Peel, in particular, was driven to the lyric, stay woke, right? (laughs) Because this family uh, that wreaks havoc in Get Out is anything but woke. They're pretending to be, but they're not. It it shines a light on, on much of ignorant white America's fear of people of color. Mm-hmm. And and that's what Peel was going for. It's it's a difficult movie to watch, I found, but a, a powerful and important movie uh, made even better by the inclusion of Redbone by Childish Gambino. Here it is. Redbone, Childish Gambino. Man, his music really works well with different Mm -hmm. inventive visuals. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Very similar to what you were saying about the Frankie Valli track. It's kind of like you put it in this context, suddenly it sounds really cool. Suddenly you got chills. You know, um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, right, has spawned a whole legion of gore movies. it's a B movie. <laughs> yeah, for Obviously, sure. the budget was just minimal, and they created this, you know, twisted. I guess you could call it a masterpiece. It's like everything that followed it has been influenced by, yeah. by this movie. Well, and the fact that it was made for like fifteen dollars. Yeah, and and the soundtrack was made for like less than that. I <laughs> yeah, think yeah. It, the score was done by the director Toby Hooper in collaboration with Wayne Bell. Talk about low budget. They were basically picking up. These instruments that they had hanging around, an up, uh, upright double bass, a Fender lap steel guitar, children's musical instruments, you know, lots of metal objects. It was like Einzerthende Neubauten, you know, <laughs> doing, going crazy in the studio, uh, banging on stuff, animal noises, you know? Yeah, yeah. And 
this melange of like sound, you know, in the background of this movie. Kind of, if you if you just sort of, t- you know, tune into what's happening in the background of that movie, you go, this is as creepy and terrifying as what's going on on the screen. You listen to what they created independent of the images, and it still creeps you out. I mean, it's terrifying stuff. Um, you know, because you don't quite know what these sounds are. No. You know, it's 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 truly disturbing. And just as in the movie where you don't really know what's going to happen next, you just know it's going to be really bad. <laughs> um, it's the same way with this soundtrack. It's yeah. like, I'm not sure what's going on here, but it's really creeping me out. It's, it, it's really, you know, the next thing that's going to happen is, is going to be really bad. Um, it, it, it's sort of a twisted masterpiece toby hooper and wayne bell the soundtrack for the texas chainsaw massacre here's an excerpt from it That is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, some of the theme music that courses through the entire film. Wayne Bell and Toby Hooper going nuts on a bunch of uh, instruments that they picked up. Oh, absolutely. Great stuff, uh, Greg. I'm going to go next to another of my all-time favorite horror films, the 1973 sleeper masterpiece, The Wicker Man. Mm. Uh, You ever seen that? I have. It's, oh, man. Oh, man, that's, is that disturbing. That's a creepy movie, too. Not the remake. Yeah. Not the remake. you got to no. go to the original right. in 73. An English sergeant investigator, DCI, goes to this uh, small rural locale and just, again, pagans. I, I find uh, pagans to be uh, really creepy. Yeah. In a good way, though. I, I'm down with pagans. As it turns out, uh, Paul Giovanni uh, formed a band called Magnet to record the entire soundtrack. And, uh, you know, it, it's a really interesting listen if you if you separate it from the film. And, and with the film, it's even stronger. I'm going to go again to sort of a left field, uh, the sex song, Willow's song mm. in The Wicker Man. And what you have is Sergeant Howie in his little uh, creepy-on-its-own hotel room uh, hearing through the wall a nude brick Eklund uh, singing this odd erotic ballad, and he is getting sucked in to the pagan circle that will, spoiler alert, eventually uh, uh, <laughs> invite him to a, a, a marshmallow roast that doesn't mm-hmm. have any marshmallows. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, Eklund uh, kind of steals the film with this scene where she's uh, writhing uh, as if possessed by spirits, but 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 Sergeant Howie can't see her. You know, she's mm-hmm. on the other side of the wall singing willow's song here it is on sound opinions Willow's song, man, you know, 
I'm getting creeped out. Yeah. I, I, I need a, I need some, uh, I need a drink. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a horror masterpiece all around. The music and the movie, uh, incredible, uh, 1973. David Lynch, uh, I, I think he's made a bunch of movies. None of them are cliche horror movies, but in some ways there's elements of horror or dread in or them, disturbing, yeah. you know, scenarios in just about every one of his movies. Uh, and that was certainly the case with Eraserhead in 1977. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's surreal. It, you know, let's just say everybody can agree on the fact that it's it's surreal. It's a difficult watch. Uh, it is. It is a difficult watch. So he directed, produced, and edited um, the movie. And he also contributed lyrics to the song I want to play. Uh, mm. It's called In Heaven, Lady in the Radiator Song. Um, <laughs> and it's a little piece of music. Um, that was performed by Peter Ivers. This, um, I, are you familiar with that name, Jim? I know uh, the Ivers. name, but I, I can't pin he, the bio. He got signed to a deal at Warner Brothers and made two extremely unconventional albums that sort of became cult favorites in the 70s. Mm. And, and Lynch, of course, took a liking to him because he was a little weird. He was a little <laughs> off, to the, off, off center. Uh, and he said, you know, let's, let's make some music together. I got these lyrics. Can you put some music with it? So this cult singer-songwriter-producer, Ivers, uh, basically puts together this track. And um, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, this, this track had, took on a life of its own afterward. Uh, obviously, the film was hugely influential to a certain uh, uh, crowd. Uh, and the artists who covered this particular song are an indication of that. Um, Devo covered it. Mm. Uh, Bauhaus covered it. Wow. Uh, the Pixies covered it years later. It was the B-side of the gigantic single. Ah. Uh, so it, 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 this, this song took on a life of its own. It's pretty damn creepy, too. Uh, in Heaven, Lady in the Radiator song from David Lynch's Eraserhead in 1977 on Sound Opinions. David Lynch and Peter Ivers in heaven, Lady in the Radiator song from mm. Eraserhead. Good pick, Mr. Cott. When we come back, more of our favorite spooky movie music. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. We've got more spooky movie music you need to hear. Jim, you're next. Well, Greg, you knew I was going to go to this one. I can't get enough Mike Oldfield. I have been a, a fan throughout his entire career. And if you're talking uh, great spooky movie music, how do you exclude Tubular Bells and The Exorcist? Um, debut studio album by Oldfield. Uh, he was only 19 years old. Multi-instrumentalist, you know, it's, it's two full sides of a vinyl album. Uh, but everybody just remembers, you know, the little bit that was used in The Exorcist. You know, the creepy, creepy opening with Oldfield, whose primary acts was the guitar. Um, you know, this established Virgin Records. It was a huge hit even before it featured on the soundtrack of The Exorcist, which gave it a second life. Um, something like uh, 
15 million albums sold Ooh, worldwide, yeah. which for instrumental music, except for the voiceover on side two, plus tubular bells, <laughs> right? Um, you know, it, it is pretty astounding. Um, I found an interview in The Guardian uh, from a while back where uh, Oldfield said uh, it was it was 10 years mm. after The Exorcist opened before he ever saw it. And, uh, quote, every Halloween it still pops up. I even hear it on CNN. And then he hummed a little bit like I just did. Uh, I guess I'm the godfather of scary movie music. Well, that's not a bad uh, title to have, Mr. Oldfield, but I think there's much more to your career. Uh, anybody ever wants to have me talk for two, three hours about Mike Oldfield? I'd be happy to do <laughs> I even saw him perform live once, which was extraordinary. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Here is a little bit of Tubular Bells that's featured in The Exorcist. That's Oldfield with Tubular Bells. Of course, your next band has to be included as well in any conversation of scary movie music. Well, you know, there should be a separate wing built in the Movie Soundtrack (laughs) Hall of Fame for Tangerine Dream. Really, right? Absolutely. I mean, incredible catalog. Um, Over 50 50 albums, I think, or just for movies. Uh, Incredible uh, range. And uh, in addition to their own stuff, of course, Tangerine Dream... Uh, basically pioneers of electronic music, yep. uh, you know, in the pop realm. Um, and, you know, there's so many to choose from, from Tangerine Dream. Edgar uh, Froese is the one constant in this group's 50-year yep. lifespan. He died in 2015, but left behind this incredible body of work, including the soundtracks. My favorite is the one he did with Bigelow, uh, the great director who um, made this. In- have you ever seen Near Dark? This I have not vampire seen vampire movie. Near Dark. Um, it simultaneously reinvented two tropey genres: mm. the western and the vampire movie. Mm. She said, "Okay, I want to reinvent both these things. I'll, com- I'll throw them, you know, I'll combine them, and it worked." I, you know, I remember watching the movie with Deb when it first came out because we were very interested in Bigelow as a, you know, first of all, female director, you yeah. know, just doing these kind of you know, daring things. But Deb, Deb was seriously freaked out by this movie. It was... Oh, wait, is this the one where they're in the bar? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I have and it's kind of graphic, great. and, you know, I it's was thinking like, 70s, but that's like a much more recent movie. And it, Yeah, and it had dark comedic elements yeah. in it, and then it had this really amazing soundtrack, you know, the yeah, Tangerine yeah. Green soundtrack. So, uh, great combination, and... and, and uh, uh, Bigelow was hugely complimentary of Edgar Froese's work on this. She said she really got the film. You know, I couldn't imagine the film without his music in mm. it. Uh, here's a track from the soundtrack, which is well worth seeking out uh, on its own. It works beautifully. Rain in the Third House. Doesn't that sound kind of creepy yeah, it on does. its own? Only the third Yes, house. Tangerine Dream from ne- the Near Dark soundtrack from 1987 on Sound Opinions.
That is the great Tangerine Dream with Rain in the Third House from the Near Dark soundtrack. What I'm going to stick in a bonus because yeah. you mentioned Tangerine Dream. The soundtrack for Sorcerer. Oh, yeah. That's another oh, I, was, man. That was in consideration. I the had, the I had movie Friedkin made yeah. after The Exorcist. Yeah. What a great movie. Great movie. Is. I'm going to uh, another uh, song uh, by another artist that I love, Colin Newman. Um, I, I think I've said this before. It can't be said often enough. His solo song alone, uh, you know, towards the end there, there was a, a lot of songwriting happening. The first end of Wire, uh, one five four. Uh, Graham Lewis, Colin's partner, uh, was getting a lot of songs on that album. Colin had a lot left over. He made his first solo album, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a to Z came out in 1980, and this song alone is completely recontextualized by Jonathan Demme's 1991 masterpiece, The Silence of the Lambs. The first time Demme's camera, which must be on one of those gyroscopes, goes through Buffalo Bill, the serial killer's uh, basement. It's like looking around, like, and we are looking around in this inner sanctum of evilness, and it goes up and over the well and finds uh, his victim that he's holding captive. And and uh, the entire uh, scene is backed up with Colin's song alone, especially the ending repetition of one line, retain a sense of humor, <laughs> right? And, and it's, uh, it's a classic. Demi, one of my great regrets, I'd met Demi at South by Southwest, and he'd, he'd been a rock critic for mm. New York Rocker in that uh, post-punk scene in New York City. And uh, we wanted to have him on to talk music. And he died before that could happen. And uh, just chatting music with Jonathan Demme, all of his soundtracks are great, but this Mm -hmm. is my favorite moment. Here is Alone, uh, as featured in Silence of the Lambs. I got a lot of stories about that song, huh, Greg? Alone. Yeah, well, I remember you uh, <laughs> You mentioned this years ago. Years and ago. I went back and YouTubed that scene. Yeah. And you were absolutely right. I mean, it's it really plays well in that particular scene. Really creepy. Um, I want to go to, uh, speaking of creepy uh, scenes, Rosemary's Baby, the oh, 1968 yeah. movie. It's really a terrifying movie. And uh, it is made all the more terrifying by, by the acting that Mia Farrow does. And then Mia is the voice on this particular song. The soundtrack was written by a Polish jazz pianist and composer, Krzysztof Komeda. He um, made one of the most important European jazz albums in, in 1965 and collaborated with Roman Polanski, the director of this movie, on a number of films. This is probably his most famous um, soundtrack, though. Uh, for good reason. Um, he uh, basically, out of harpsichords and this ethereal orchestration, uh, built this monument to, um, you know, just great creepy horror movies with uh, the Rosemary's Baby main title theme, and then layering over the top Mia Farrow's voice. 
So you get this sort of childlike voice over the top of this yeah. kind of very creepy orchestration. And it's a lullaby. It's a song you would sing to lull a child to sleep. And yet it has this creepy undertow, which is basically the whole movie. You kind of get this constant sense of something, you know, really horrible. And the resonances that film has taken on, given uh, Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, being murdered by the Manson family, and the horrible Me Too accusations uh, against Polanski. Absolutely. uh, There are layers upon layers upon layers of that movie, and the music contributes. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I I, I again point back to Cometa as as the real hero here because he was an amazing musician uh, who died young uh, but left behind uh, an incredible body of work. Um, He died in 1969 at age 37, so Mm. a number of serious losses then um, during that era. But um, here's uh, the amazing Rosemary's Baby main title from 1968 on Sound Opinions. Rosemary's Baby, the main theme. Christoph Kometa is the composer. Go seek out his work um, ASAP if you haven't done it already. Uh, Greg, I'm going to wrap up with a classic song from an absolutely dreadful movie. <laughs> how can you how can you talk spooky music and not talk about Bauhaus? I'm not really a huge fan of of Bauhaus, but you gotta love Bella Lugosi's Dead. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, it just everything you want to know about goth is in that song. Um, it opens the film The Hunger, which is a horrible. Horrible, horrible <laughs> movie. Uh, Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, uh, vampires on the prowl. Mm. Susan Sarandon's in the film. Um, everybody involved with the movie was uh, embarrassed. Although Bowie uh, later said, you know, the first 20 minutes rattle along like hell. It really is a great opening. Uh-huh. And that's absolutely true. There are videos uh, on YouTube of the first 20 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the two vampire, the vampire couple on the prowl. It's sexy, it's scary, yeah. it is scored to Bella Lugosi's dead, and then the movie goes right in the toilet. So so <laughs> just watch the YouTube 20 minutes. I, do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. A bad movie, bad yeah. movie. But a great song uh, that's uh, inspired many others, been used in other films, but this will be the one that, uh, that goes down in history. So uh, shout out to Bauhaus. White on white, translucent black capes Back on the rack Bella Lugos is dead The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled That velvet lines The black box Bella Lugos is dead Bella Lugosi's dead. Oh man, oh, what a that's a great song. It's a silly song, but it's a great song. Yeah, well, it's so it is done really well. That sort of reggae-ish, you know, uh, treatment of of that, um, you know, the arrangement is it, it it suits the content. And I remember they opened. 
they had a reunion tour, and uh, they I guess they played at Coachella. I don't know if it was a tour, but they a show. First I, time sh- I sure hope it was forever. at night. It, it should, was the Bauhaus should not appear it during was the at day. Night. And they opened with this song, and they lowered Peter Murphy on the stage, <laughs> dangling by his ankles. So like a bat. He is a bat. Down, yeah, yeah. Lower, being lowered. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cheesy, but it was great. Everybody oh, loved man. it. Um, speaking of bad films, Candyman is one of those bad films, 1992. But the, the original is great. Yeah. And it's a great actress, Virginia Madsen. But yeah. the movie was sort of butchered as a B-level slasher movie. Although it is fun to see Cabrini Green in Chicago before it was torn down. <laughs> right, right, in right. The projects. Philip Glass, though, is the person who made the soundtrack. He's one of my favorite uh, composers. And it's actually one of the most popular works um, he's ever done because it's so good. <laughs> He thought he was making a, uh, a soundtrack under the impression that this was going to be a cool indie horror film based on the Clive Barker short story, The Forbidden. That's mm. the storyline in, in uh, Candyman. And, uh, you know, so he created this soundtrack thinking, I'm making something really cool for something really cool. Uh, it didn't quite work out that way, but the soundtrack, the score really holds up. The piano, organ, looped choruses, I mean, he's basically doing this stuff on his own. Uh, it is not a typical horror movie soundtrack in any way where, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a, a ruefulness to it, a, a contemplative kind of uh, a tone to it. It's haunting but not horrifying, if mm. you can, you know, if, if that distinction makes sense. Um, kind of a beautiful sense of regret and melancholy in the way he's written this mu- music. But uh, it's way better and way more layered than the movie. Don't bother with the movie. <laughs> Listen to the soundtrack. Glass well, does yeah. say, you know, hey, hey, worked out pretty well for me because people yeah. do seem to like the, the music. So this is Helen's theme from Philip Glass's Candyman soundtrack, 1992, on Sound Opinions. theme from Candyman. Candyman, uh-oh, better not say it three times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this was, we could go on with this all day, uh, but we want to hear your thoughts. Uh, give us some of your scary music uh, movie moments. Uh, we'll love to feature them on the show. Soundopinions.org is the website. You can leave us a voice message there. Mr. Cott, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to do a deep dive into Pearl Jam, a, um, a great new book by Stephen Hyden, friend of the show, a great music critic himself, uh, w- has written a book about Pearl Jam. We're going to talk to Stephen about it. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of uh, good stuff on the bonus lately, Greg. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Once I saw-